Hi, this is episode 23 of K. Ray Reads to You. Today we have part one of chapter seven of Absolute Zero by Helen Cresswell. Chapter seven. During the second week of Daisy's visit, it seemed at first that an unaccustomed lull fell over the Bagthorpe household. The competition entering was falling off as they ran out of competitions to enter, and, in the case of the younger Bagthorpes, funds. "'It's an investment,' William told his mother, when she timidly suggested that perhaps he was overspending on magazines and stamps, and buying commodities he was never likely to use, simply in order to enclose part of their packaging with his entry. "'What?' for instance, she asked him, will you do with three giant tubes of suntan cream? They will hardly make suitable Christmas gifts. At Christmas, he replied, I shall be skiing in Austria, or else sunning in Tenerife. I shall need a lot of suntan cream. I shall ask Atlanta if she wants to come with me. Mrs. Bagthorpe looked very dubious at this. It reminded her of her problems, but said nothing. Daisy seemed to have gone into a quiet phase. She had not written anything on the walls for a week, though other people had. If the walls were to be redecorated anyway, no one wanted to miss the chance of writing something clever on them. As small children, they had never been allowed to do this, and must have been harboring secret ambitions in this direction, judging by the spate of thoughts and bon mot that streamed from them. Even Jack did it. He tried to get Zero into most of the things he wrote, not because he thought Zero could read them and be encouraged by them, but because he hoped they would have an effect on the family. He wrote, for instance, Zero is a dark horse, and Zero could do anything if he wanted to, he just doesn't want to. He also wrote, Zero hour is coming, under which William wrote, Prepare to meet thy doom, under which Mr. Bagthorpe wrote, If the day of judgment is coming, I hope to God at last we'll see some justice done, underneath which Grandma wrote, Amen. <laughs> Grandma usually had the last word. Daisy's quiet phase lasted until the Tuesday of the second week. "'She has really settled down beautifully,' Mr. Bagthorpe said, "'and it's delightful to see how happy she and Mother are together.' "'I don't agree,' returned her husband. "'That pair are as dangerous as—' he, "'Here he stopped, for want of a strong simile, and gave up. "'They're terrorists,' he said. "'They'd stop at nothing.' Grandma, as it happened, had very little to do with the events of the second Tuesday, though Mr. Bagthorpe did not believe this, and always maintained that she had put Bagthorpe up to it, and that she had put Daisy up to it. Grandma did not contest this, because she wanted to feel she had played a part in it, and really wished that she had. It was, in fact, Mr. Bagthorpe who unwittingly triggered the whole thing off by a chance remark at lunch. He was talking about Uncle Parker, because another card had just arrived, even more irritating than the first. "'It would seem like paradise to him, of course,' said Mr. Bagthorpe, "'because he's never done a day's work in his life. <sighs> "'Lying around, swigging gin and doing crosswords. "'In his element, of course.' "'What's an element, Uncle Bag?' piped up Daisy, "'whose mother had told her always to ask the meanings of words she did not understand.' "'You tell her,' Mr. Bagthorpe told William. "'Mr. Bagthorpe did not care to enter into conversation with Daisy, "'because it interfered with his pretense that she did not exist. "'He used this kind of blotting-out technique with Zero as well, 
and was always making out he had never set eyes on him before. Jack, in a bold moment, had once challenged him directly about this. "'If I thought that mutton-headed hound was going to stop here forever,' Mr. Bagthorpe had replied, "'I should lose my sanity. It's a necessary defense mechanism.' Tess and William both started to explain to Daisy what an element was, the former using a literary approach, the latter a scientific. Tess was talking a lot about Shakespeare and Chaucer, and not only told Daisy what an element was, but what a humor was as well. On the whole, Daisy was listening more to Tess than to William, and the latter gave up in the end, saying, "'We grew, outgrew Chaucer and that lot centuries ago.' Afterward he said he was glad Tess had told Daisy what an element was, because it was a responsibility he wouldn't wish to have to live with. The rest of the meal Daisy went very quiet and thoughtful, but nobody noticed this. The Bagthorpes rarely noticed other people. Daisy, being after all only four, had grasped only dimly what an element was. Tess had, however, mentioned fire and water in the same breath, and this had struck a chord. Later Aunt Celia was to claim that it had struck an ancient, primitive, unconscious chord, and showed at how deep a level Daisy's mind was already working. Mr. Bagthorpe then said that the word he would use was not deep, but low, and a semantic argument had developed out of this that drew the fire off Daisy altogether. This may even have been what Aunt Celia intended. She was certainly very expert at defending Daisy, and had probably had to develop this art, being her mother. Fire and water, then, became inextricably linked in Daisy's mind. She already knew about fire, of course, and probably felt she had experimented far enough with this element for the time being. Water, however, was something else again. Daisy had done hardly any experimenting with water other than splashing about in the bath and paddling. A whole new world seemed to open up for her. She must have spent the rest of the meal silently thinking about water and what she could create with it. Even so, it was a relatively short time in which to develop an all-out obsession, which was what Daisy appeared to have done. All the Bagthorpes got obsessions, but nobody had ever developed one quite so quickly as this before. Daisy's behavior during that afternoon was that of an all-out obsessive. It was as if, had she had the necessary tap to hand, she would have flooded the whole world. It later turned out that Noah's Ark was one of her favorite stories, and she also had a record of Captain Noah and his floating zoo, which she never tired of hearing. She probably really did believe that if she turned on all the taps and waited, the Bagthorpes would be going two by two before the day was out. This prospect, to the four-year-old mind, was understandably attractive, though in the event there were only two other people who said they could understand it, Aunt Celia and Grandma. Things would not have developed to the pitch they did, however, had not Mr. and Mrs. Bagthorpe decided to go into Isham that afternoon to see a French film. William, Tess, and Rosie accompanied them, but Jack said that he did not like French films. "'The subtitles have gone before you have time to read them properly,' he said. Tess scornfully told him that when you went to a French film, you were supposed to be listening to what was being said, not reading English.' Jack openly admitted that his French was not up to this, and said that he intended to take Zero for a long walk. Daisy, then, had been left in the charge of Grandma and Grandpa, neither of whom appeared to have any qualms about the matter. 
Mr. and Mrs. Bagthorpe set off, leaving Grandpa having his postprandial doze, Grandma and Daisy playing Ludo, which, astonishingly, Grandma allowed her partner to win occasionally, and Jack starting acro- off across the meadow with Zero. Jack had said that he was taking Zero for a walk, which was true, but not the whole truth. It was becoming increasingly clear that Zero had a potential that until recently had never been allowed to develop. Now that he could fetch and beg, Jack intended to add another skill to his repertoire. That'll make three strings to his bow, Jack thought with satisfaction. What Jack had in mind was that Zero should learn to find his way back home from a long distance. This he had never been able to do. If he wandered out of calling range, what he had always done was to sit or lie down and wait to be reported missing and for a search party to be sent out. This party usually consisted of Jack alone, though sometimes Rosie came too, on the off chance that something exciting might have happened that she could keep a record of. Once Zero had mastered finding his way back home, Jack intended to give him a period of intensive training so that he could develop into something between a homing pigeon and a bloodhound. He had given a lot of thought to the method he would adopt to bring about this end. To some extent, he would have to be ruthless. Zero had to be genuinely lost. This meant that Jack, when Zero was looking the other way, would have to swing into a tree or else dodge away behind a hedge, leaving Zero absolutely on his own. And that's the end of part one of chapter seven of Absolute Zero. See you next time.